My name is uh, Norbert. I'm pastor of Grace Church. If this is your first time, I'd like to welcome you. Um, I have, always have to remind myself that uh, there are guests every Sunday. So, uh, welcome. My prayer is that you will encounter God in a fresh new way. I will speak to you in a very personal way this morning. One of the main tasks of preachers is to obviously preach but there's a definitive mandate that we have and that comes with it. The, the, more, the older Apostle Paul instructed the younger pastor Timothy to preach the word in season and out of season. And I realize it's, uh, it's November 27. It's 27 days before Christmas. And we are still in the book of Revelation. Makes you wonder if the seven churches, the recipient of the letter, will have to cancel their, their um, series on the book just because it's Christmas season. Now, I would think they would continue preaching on Revelation because it's timely. Although Christmas is about the first coming of Jesus, Jesus was born, Revelation is about the second coming of Jesus, which is more glorious. We are waiting for the second coming of Jesus. We are excited for that. As far as I know, I am excited for Jesus to come back. Anyone excited here? All right. That means no more vacation for you when he comes. <laughs> but that's the whole idea of the second coming. So that he will establish the new heaven and the new earth. Now, I must warn you that this passage we are going to embark is rated R18. That's why I had to wait for the kids to come down. This is R18 because it's graphic and it's violent. Now, if you watch any Quentin Tarantino's film, you can handle this. You know Quentin Tarantino, right? All the movies that he did, is always blood spilling and sword slicing and guns firing. You can handle this if you can handle Quentin's. Now, Revelation 19, 11 to 21 comes in two parts. First, the first six verses deals with who he is a more complete picture of who Jesus is and what he will do when he comes back. The second part is the last five verses from 17 up to, up to 21. Gives us a picture of what it would look like with the world when he comes back. And this is, again, a graphic and violent image of what will happen. Now, the way we know Jesus Christ or Jesus is by reading literature, by some of you have watched movies about him. Some have uh, seen uh, paintings and sculptures and all those things. So we know Jesus a bit because of those things. But in all the literature and arts and, and movies, you never see Jesus smiling. Anyone see a painting of Jesus smiling? Or Jesus laughing? Or you've read the literature that says Jesus cracked the joke? Never, almost never. Or anyone have seen Jesus get angry or shouting at people? Almost never. What we have is that Jesus is always gentle, quiet, calm, collected, teaching about the Beatitudes, telling people what to do, healing the sick, and all those things. But never a violent Jesus. Well, today, we'll have a better fuller picture of who Jesus is and what he looks like. Never in, in the Bible was he presented as 
a ferocious warrior with six-pack majestically riding on a horse to battle. You don't see him like that. Always a gentle savior who died on a cross. But never like movies, never like in the movies like Denzel Washington in Equalizer, and definitely not like John Wick, a type of hero. Jesus to us, the way we understand him, and the way we read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, is always the gentle, kind, savior Jesus. Revelation 19, 11 to 21, gives us a fuller picture of who Jesus really is. Let me read to you some, beginning from verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting, it's called Faithful and True. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. That's a kind of different kind of Jesus, right? His eyes are like flame of fire. And on his head are many diadems. Diadems are crowns. His cloth, he has a name written that no one knows but himself. His cloth in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe, on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is so far, far from the Jesus that you read from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But you will find here three names, more like titles, of who Jesus is. He is faithful and true. He is the Word of God. And he has a title, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. What do those things mean? But first, do you remember when Moses first encountered God on the mountain? He was shepherding. And then he encountered God. He saw a bush that is burning but, but not consumed. Do you remember that, right? So he went to the bush and a voice came from the bush. Obviously, the bush is not God. It was only used as an apparition for God to show himself to Moses. But what's interesting is what Moses asked God because God said, go to Pharaoh, tell him, let my people go. What Moses said is very telling and interesting. He said, what's your name? What should I tell the people about your name? Why is it important for Moses to know God's name? Because if he is going to be the the messenger of God, he must tell Pharaoh who this God is. Because in Egypt, Pharaoh knows all the gods. In fact, Pharaoh is one of the gods. If he is to tell the people of Israel, they must know who this God is calling them out from Egypt. So Moses asked God, what is your name? Now, interestingly, God already introduced his name. I am the God of your father, Abraham, father of Isaac, father Jacob. But he wants to know his personal name. And what's interesting is that God told him not a personal name, but a descriptive name. He said, I am. What is your name? I am. Is that a name to you? It's almost a description of a name. It's not a name. In Hebrew, it's eh, yeah. It's not Yahweh. Yahweh is he is. But you cannot say he is, it's I am, so Ehyeh. But what's interesting is that Ehyeh is not pronounced by any Jew as of today because of fear of violating the third commandment. You shall not use the name of the Lord in vain. So when they speak of God, they say Hashem, the name. 
But God's name is Yeh, I am. What does it mean? In, in modern categories, uh, Shaquille means handsome. Anybody here Shaquille? No? Shaquille in Arabic means handsome. Edwin in Anglo-Saxon means rich friend. <laughs> rich friend. Our names have meaning. My name is not significant. But names have meaning. All right? Your names must have meanings. What does Ehye means? What does God's name means? God's name means eternal, uncreated. He is omnipotent. That's what his name means. He's uncreated. He's eternal. When Moses was asking God, what's the meaning of your name? He was trying to distinguish himself from the gods of Egypt. That's, what he's, that's why he said, I am, I am uncreated, eternal. Because all the gods in Egypt were all created. They have beginnings. Now, Yahweh sets himself apart by saying that his name means eternal, uncreated, and self-existent. On the other hand, Jesus' titles or names have meanings. His name is faithful and true. He's the faithful servant of God, true. Uh, he said, I'm the way, the truth, and life. He's also called the word of God. He's the very word of God in the flesh. He's also called the king of kings and the lord of lords. That's a very long name. You don't really you know, give your children long names. You're going to give them a hard time writing their names. Every exam paper. You know Jose Rizal's name? That's a long name. So we gave our daughter one name. That's it. One name. Thea. That's it. But Jesus' last name is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That's a long one. All these names, by the way, are related to what he will do when he comes back the second time. Now, my hope is that you don't get nightmares because of this one. Because again, this passage is graphic. John mentioned that he was riding a white horse. This white horse is a preferred color for kings and royalties. That's why Jesus is said to be riding on a white horse. His eyes are like flames of fire. Now think about X-Men, Cyclops. Whenever he takes off the glass, it's laser. Maybe, I don't know. He wears many crowns. Probably chained around his horse are the crowns of different kings that he have conquered. This, this third one is, uh, is terrible. He wears a robe soaked in blood and his name was written on it. H have you seen warriors and crusaders after the war? They're all soaked with blood and, and sweat. Description is very far from the gentle Jesus that we knew, teaching on the mountain, telling the people about Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are... And, and this gentle Jesus is the one who tells us, do not retaliate, turn your other cheek. This is the Jesus who said, suffer for the kingdom of God. But this... Jesus that John presents is a different kind of Jesus. In contrast, Jesus here is presented as a warrior who comes to bring judgment on all who rejected him. Now, I understand that some people would like to think of Jesus as a gentle savior, and that's true. Jesus is a savior. But to some people, Jesus is a savior and nothing more. That's the problem here. Jesus is just simply a savior, period. Now, think about this. If you're in the middle of trouble, say, for example, someone is robbing you in the middle of the street, would you honestly think that Jesus would come to rescue and kill the bad guys? Maybe not. 
Maybe not. Maybe you'll think of Jesus Spider-Man. He would tie up you know, the bad guys and wait for the cops to, to arrive. Jesus is not the, the type of a person who would kill people. Like, you know, Denzel Washington in Equalizer, cold-blooded assassin. No, he was not, he's not like that. But Jesus here is different. John gives us a complete picture of, of Jesus Christ. In verse 11, it says, In righteousness, he judges and makes war. This is a different kind of Jesus. In 13, he said, His cloth in robe dipped in blood. In 15, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nation. The last one got me. It says in verse 15, he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. Think about the winepress when the grapes are crushed. Think about the people where God will crush the fury of God's wrath, the Almighty. It's hard to imagine, my point is, it's hard to imagine Jesus in this context of fury and wrath. And yet, here we are. So when I see hardened criminals in prison, I've been to prisons many times. Not because I was in prison. I visited people in prison. When I saw inmates having their tattoos of Jesus, I've never seen a Jesus, a smiling Jesus on their tattoos. All I see are Jesus crucified on the cross, dead, like a fall guy. Because their understanding of Jesus is just a savior and nothing more. I would suppose that there are people in the pews, people who claim to know Jesus, people who claim to follow Jesus, who must have a misunderstanding of who Jesus is, who might have thought that Jesus is just simply a savior, period. Now, the reason why in the Gospels Jesus is presented as Lord and Savior is because that is the fuller definition of who He is. That means you cannot be a part of God's kingdom only by receiving the benefits of the kingdom. That means one cannot be truly a disciple if one treats Jesus as Savior and not Lord. Let me put this in perspective. In the first century context, the Roman Emperor Caesar is both Savior and Lord. He is Soter and he is Dominus, Lord, Savior and Lord. He's Savior because he's the one who provides the stability and prosperity and peace in the kingdom. He's the Savior of the people. He's also Lord because he's the one who sits on the throne. So the emperor is both Lord and Savior. He demands worship because he's Lord and Savior. You cannot just ask for benefits. You must worship also the Roman Emperor Caesar, because he is both Lord and Savior. On the other hand, Jesus also calls us to treat him like Lord and Savior. He's the exact competition of Caesar. That's why when Jesus was asked about paying taxes to Caesar, he said, give unto Caesar what belongs to Caesar and to God what belongs to God. You must make a choice. Who really is God and Lord? That's the point, what Jesus made. Now, one litmus test of loyalty to Caesar, so this is interesting. If you read the annals or the history of Rome, Emperor Domitian built for himself a replica of himself, an idol. And one litmus test of loyalty is to kill an animal, to sacrifice an animal in front of the image. A lot of people suffered, were thrown in prison, died and executed because they would not offer an animal to the idol of Caesar. There are so many known and famous Christians who suffered under the brutality of Caesar. But there are also other people who shifted their allegiance 
because when threatened by death, they would say, Caesar is Lord. Uh, Jesus would understand. See, these people have, have no complete understanding of who Jesus is. He, they only think of Jesus as Savior and not Lord. The thing is, there are people today that if you offer them an acceptance of Jesus, they would rather easily accept Jesus in a heartbeat. You, you wouldn't have to even convince them. It's easy to say, would you accept Jesus as your Lord? Yes, I do. It's easy. Why? Because to other people, collecting saviors is better because it guarantees their future. When a Buddhist say, do you want to go to, to be reincarnated and you know, be enlightened? Of course, yes. Christianity offers a savior. Oh, yes. Islam says, we want to offer you peace. Yes. I mean, to, to other people, being offered different gods is a guarantee of their future. But you see, the problem here is to give your allegiance to Jesus, Jesus demands an exclusive kind of allegiance. You cannot worship Caesar and Jesus together. You cannot treat Caesar as Lord and Jesus as Lord together. In the biblical period, the call to the kingdom of God is always exclusive. The worship of God is exclusive. You shall not worship any idol. Exclusive. To worship Jesus is exclusive. That's why the first commandment is not to worship idols. God has no competition in his class. There's only one God. There's only one God Almighty. There cannot be two Almighties. Only one. And Bruce is not Almighty. God is eternal. There cannot be any other eternal God. He must be worshipped exclusively. Everything else is created. He is uncreated. That's why he said, I am eternal, self-existent. Even angels and demons and spirits are created. We are created. The reason why God prohibits people from worshiping animals is because they are created. The reason why we cannot worship other human beings is because they were also created. Only God is I am, uncreated. And his worship must be exclusive. Look at verse 12. It says, His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many crowns, diadems. He has a name written that no one knows but himself. Now, all the other three names, Faithful and True, Word of God, and King of Kings and Lord of Lords, are more like titles than names. His real name, his personal name, is unknown. Why is it? Why is it that it's unknown? Let me explain. In the scriptures, especially in the Old Testament, the one who gives the name has control over the one that they give names to. So think of Adam, when God gave, created Adam from the ground, in Hebrew word, ground is Adama, so his name is Adam. That's the first name that God gave to Adam. From the ground, Adama, he was Adam. Now what's interesting is that when God commissioned Adam, he gave him dominion over all the creatures of the world. So he, he named all the other animals, all other animals in the kingdom. He even gave the name to his wife. Those, the, the moment he met his wife, he called him Isha. Well, Ish is man, Isha is woman. The next time, next thing that happened, they were expelled from the Garden of Eden and he gave another name to his wife. Eve, the mother of all living. The one who gives the name has dominion or authority over 
the one whose name is given. That's why as parents, we are, have the authority to give the names to our children, right? You did not ask your neighbor to give names to your children, correct? You're the ones who give names to your children. You have the authority to give names to your children. What this means is that in the case of Jesus Christ, having an unknown name means he's not under anyone's authority. He's not someone else's lieutenant. He, his term doesn't end after four years like presidents. He's not subject to re-election. And he rules regardless of our opinions about him. We cannot cancel him even if he's politically incorrect. He rules with absolute authority because he is king of kings and lord of lords. So think about all the kings. He's the king of all the kings. That's what it means. Think about the implications to our prayers then. If he is king of kings and lord of lords, and when we come to him in prayer and petition, when we come to him in prayer, do we demand or do we beg? Do we say, God, I need this? Do we pray like we pray to a genie? I want this. Give me three wishes and we'll be done. Lord, um, if you just give me this prayer request, I will definitely go to church every Sunday for one year. We call it panata, right? Do we come to him as king of kings and lord of lords? Or do we demand in prayer? When we address him as lord, do we pray as if he doesn't have an option to say yes or no? Or do we pray and wait patiently? Do we take him seriously about his command to prioritize his kingdom agenda more than our personal needs? Or do we see about, do we think about him only when we need something? I'm, I'm asking these things because these are the implications to submitting under his authority. The second half of the passage, verses 17 to 21, tells us of a more graphic image of what will happen when he comes. Let me read to you. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun. With a loud voice, he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead. Come, gather for the great supper of God. This is different from the marriage supper of the Lamb. To eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. Again, this is R18. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth within their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on a horse in, against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who is in the presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worship its image. These two were thrown alive in the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Now we know that sulfur is abundant around volcanoes, but you cannot take the blood soak robe and the sword from his mouth literally right so that means you cannot also take the lake of fire literally if you, you can scare the hell out of people by telling them about hell how terrible it is and how hot it is in Arizona I mean in hell 
I've been to Arizona, and I know it's really hot in hell, in Arizona. But the thing is, we can scare people and kids about how terrible it is in hell, but you cannot take this literally. It's not literally a lake of fire. This is a metaphor for something that's terrible, a punishment that is eternal. When I was a kid, um, I used to watch, there's always a crusade for like two weeks. Every day there will be crusades where the film uh, Burning Hell is shown. I was probably six or seven and I watched it every, every night with my mom because she would go there. And I get traumatized every day. Every time I watch, I would cry and I would say, Jesus, please don't bring me to hell. I accept you as Lord and Savior. I get traumatized watching the film, Burning Hell. I'm not sure if you watched that film. It's still in YouTube, by the way, Burning Hell. It depicts, it depicts hell, and, and Satan is there with pitchfork, and, you know, he's, he's not burned in hell. That's interesting, but in Revelation, he's also suffering in hell. But, but that is a, a, a terrible thing. See, in the book of Revelation, hell is a metaphor. It's not literal. So you cannot take this literally, just like any other uh, metaphors that were used here. I can imagine the anguish and the torture that comes in perpetuity to those who have rejected Jesus. Although this is not a literal fire hell, but there is suffering that's, that's being projected here. And the image is gory and bloody. It's like watching the Gerald Butler kill the persons in the historic drama 300. Or watching any Quentin Tarantino's film like Django Unchained. Anyone see that? Oh my goodness. You will see blood spilling, sword slicing, guns firing. It's bloody and gory. But the image stuck in me was from the scene, The Kingdom of Heaven. Anyone seen The Kingdom of Heaven? Starring Orlando Bloom. Okay, cool. There's so many movies that we can learn from. So I saw this movie. This is, again, a historical drama about the Jews, the Christians, and the Muslims all trying to fight over who will own Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the, the most holiest city for them. So there was a scene in this movie when the newly crowned king, Guy de Losignon, assembled the army of Jerusalem to fight a much bigger army, the Muslim army. And there's a scene where the camera pans from the ground right to the bird's eye view, to see the devastation and the massacre of the army of Jerusalem. And during that time, while the whole army lies dead on the ground, the battlefield was soaked in blood. The birds are circling around, waiting for their turn to gorge on the flesh of dead men. And if you watch this on big screen, I guarantee it will send a chill in your spine. But there's one definitive takedown from this passage. Verse 15. It says, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. Now, again, this is a metaphor. This, you cannot take this literally. If Jesus is coming to make war against his enemies using sword from his mouth, it's ridiculous. It would make more sense if Jesus will, will have bullets coming from his mouth or missiles coming from his mouth. It's easier. It's more damaging. But swords, you cannot take this literally. If this is related to the Battle of Armageddon, which is also not literal and physical, then it will make more sense to think that, that the sword coming from the mouth of Jesus has something to do with his title, the Word of God. In Ephesians, Paul said, the sword of the Spirit. 
See, when Jesus comes, it will, be, it will not be a war where his enemies will be waiting for him to you know, press anything that explodes. When he comes back, it will be like his enemies in, in orange jumpsuits in chain behind the bars. It will be judgment day for them. This is the picture that John is telling us in chapter 19. It will be a sentencing in a trial. You see, let's not forget, Jesus is called Almighty. That's Revelation 1.8 and Revelation 4.8. Which means, literally, he doesn't need an army to fight. He doesn't need a horse to ride on. He doesn't need swords to attack. All he do is probably snap his finger and his enemies are done. Or maybe he can do like God, speak, let there be, and his enemies are done. It's a done deal. You see, the Battle of Armageddon is not literal physical war. It's the same here in chapter 19. It's filled with metaphors and hyperboles to establish the, the point. Jesus will defeat his enemies. Everyone will receive their just punishment. Everyone will be put to right. That is Revelation 19. But John used these graphic images to get our attention to make sure that we grasp a better, fuller picture of reality. Now, right now, we're talking about the second coming, and it's all good in paper because it's hard to wait for something that has no definite date. Anyone know when he's coming back? No one? Anyone? God has revealed to you that he's coming back on a certain date? Anyone? No one. Not in the Bible? See, so it's ridiculous for people to just, you know, reveal something that God talked to me and he will come back certain dates so and so. There were people who came who have predicted the coming of Jesus, but they all were proven false. There's nothing in the Bible that says there's a definite date. We all have been told to wait. He's coming soon. And soon for God may not be soon for us. So my point is, it's not, it, maybe it's not. It's hard just to wait without a definite date. And I can imagine, in comparison, the Israelites, when Moses told them, let my people go, and they're ready to go, that night, the Passover will come, the angel of death will come, and Pharaoh will release them. That night, Moses was telling the Israelites, prepare, because tonight we will go out from Egypt. I can imagine the worries of mothers with their infants. Where am I going to get the formula in the desert? How long is the travel? Where are we going to get water in the desert? How long will the food last? Are we going to have oasis in the desert? What about the cold of winter? What about the sun, the striking sun in the middle of the day? What about all these things? What about the bandits and the terrorists that might attack us? These are real worries for the Israelites. And maybe you're asking the same thing. Yeah, these are real worries, but will God take care of them? The answer is yes. If God has taken care of them, if God has taken care of Pharaoh and the gods of Egypt, if God is able to free them from slavery, will God not be able to provide for their needs? Obvious answer is yes. It's the same thing when Jesus Christ was asked in the Beatitudes in Matthew about food, shelter, and clothing. He pointed to the birds in the sky and the flowers in the field. Look at the birds in the sky. They don't work and yet they eat. The flowers on the fields. Solomon did not have as beautiful as robes as they have. 
the birds in the sky and the flowers in the field, if God's provided for them, how much more you are, whom the Bible said made in the image of God. How much more we are, who is the apple of God's eye. We are the reason why God came in the flesh, be born in the flesh, Christmas Day, because God loves us. How much more God will not provide for us? I think it's a legitimate worry for us because we will pay bills, right? Come Christmas, there are people who depend on us back home. We have our health to take care of. These are legitimate worries. But see, if God is able to give his own son to us, will not he give the rest to us? Are you worried? Are you worried about credit card bills? I'm also a little worried <laughs> of my spending. <laughs> but we can control them, right? But this is not the end of the world. We can trust God. Now, here's the thing. These things, I, I think, are legitimate worries, but these things are petty things which God already promised to take care of. If God can provide and sustain both the birds and the flowers, how much more we? I would say in the same way, we have our own worries to think of, but God is able to provide for our needs. To God, these are mundane worries, and these mundane worries sometimes are what preoccupies our minds. Things to eat, things to clothe ourselves, roof over our heads, these are mundane there are things that God has given to us to prove that he is able to provide for us. Our loyalty to him as Lord demands that we give to the church ministry even when we just have enough. Our allegiance dictates that we go to church on Sunday to worship him even though we can make more money on weekends. His mandate demands that we volunteer our gifts and talents even though sometimes they go unrecognized and underappreciated. Why would a God who can provide would demand things from us? I mean, do, does he need anything from us? No, he doesn't need anything from us. But he would demand because he is Lord. Let's not forget that. He's not just a savior. He's Lord. And us, Lord, we have to provide, to give, to acknowledge, to recognize that he is also our Lord. All those things that he demand, he can only demand because all, because he did it first. The Bible said he loved us. That's why we love him. The only reason why he can demand is because he first did it for us. He came first time unappreciated, unwelcomed. His own people did not recognize him as kings. The kings of the earth conspired against him and executed him. The world rejected him the first time. See, Christmas Day is not really a festive day in the first century because when Jesus Christ was born, Herod massacred the children. It was not a festive day, just like what we do today. Christmas reminds me of a massacre that happened also in Egypt when Moses was being hunted down by Pharaoh. Revelation is the same way. When he comes back for judgment, it will be judgment for the people who rejected him. His coming with charges with the list of crimes committed under his rule. And when he comes back, there will be no mercy for the people who rejected him. So the obvious message for those who rejected him is repentance. There's no other message for them. 
What about the church? What is the, God's message for us through this passage? Two things. Christian life is like a race. It's a cross-country, long-distance endurance race. And if we are competing, there are two things that we can do. Number one, stay healthy. If there's anything that we have to do to stay healthy spiritually, because if we stay healthy spiritually, it will keep us from distraction. It will help us to focus on what really matters. Make the main thing the main thing. Staying spiritually healthy keeps us fit to serve. There will be a lot of things that will distract you from the main thing this season, but keeps, keep your eyes focused. The bills will definitely distract you. Heartaches will d- distract you. Some gossips will distract you. A lot of problems will distract you, but keep your focus on Jesus. He's the reason why. It doesn't matter if you don't have, if you don't have enough food on the table. It doesn't matter if you cannot bring in your friends at home to dine with you on Christmas Day. It doesn't matter. That's, that's unnecessary for Christmas. The real Christmas reason is Jesus Christ. If you do not have, come to my house, I will provide that for you. Right? Cat, let's provide for them. <laughs> Stay healthy. Secondly, if, if we are on an endurance race, a marathon, maintain the pace. Maintain the pace. Christian life is not a sprint. It's a marathon. It's not whoever reaches the finish line first. It's about you finishing, period. Right? Do you want to go, and fi- go to the finish line first? I'm going to pray for you to go to heaven now. I mean, if life, if Christian life is a marathon, then we have to just maintain the pace. If you have to slow down, then slow down, but don't stop. If you have to run, then run. But here's the thing. You don't have to do it alone. We are better together. We are better together because we can encourage each other run the race. Listen to the book of Hebrews. Give us this encouragement, and I'm going to close this encouragement from the book of Hebrews. It says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Think about a competition. We are in a coliseum where people are looking at us. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. This is all what we have to do. See, it's December. It's going to be Christmas soon. I understand some of you whose family is back home, you will be lonely a little bit. But we are here. We are your family here. We want to be with you. We want to celebrate with you. There's no alone Christian. You may be single. Your family may not be here but we are family here. We always tell ourselves we are a small church with a big heart because we see ourselves as a family. I hope you're encouraged today. Are you? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege and opportunity to know who you are, to have a fuller and better grasp of your identity, not just a gentle Savior, but a ruling Lord. A Lord who is in charge 
of our lives. A Lord who is in charge of everything that happens in this world. The world will be maybe chaotic. There are so many things that may probably be happening randomly. But we declare, Father, that you are Lord, you are in charge, you rule the world. And we are grateful, we are under your care. We pray this in Jesus' name.